Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 269, Biting the Big Apple. Recorded January 22nd, 2017, and brought to you by Element Opie Productions. ElementOpie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. That's right, only here. Doesn't happen anywhere else. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Ossigeneer Wakeham. Hi, gentlemen. Howdy, Mark, and welcome to the fine folks from Element Opie stopping by this here week. Yo, geeks. What up? <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm I'm all big boss vic koslovich uh today just that's that's i'm channeling that apparently am 6969 out of ww washington anyway it just uh i hope it'll fade but that's how i read that whole intro um so you went miles we talked about it i don't remember if we were recording or not when we talked about it but you were going to the largest car auction in the world how cool is that it was cool. It's it's only a mile from my house, which is one of the few great things about where I live is that we have this big collectible car, car show called the Barrett Jackson Car Auction or something in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it's on. It was on this week, and I think it finished last night. I think there might be remnants of it going on today, but uh, it was really cool. I went down for a whole day, um, took a friend of mine, and we. Pretty much just geeked out on old cars, new cars, all cars. I saw some pretty amazing cars uh, with a lot of interesting provenance, and um, it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So what's the weather like right now where you are, where you can go to an outside car show? It's okay today. I mean, it's about 65. It's sunny, but yesterday and the day before that, it was pretty much nonstop rain, but you know, when we say rain, it's, you know, a drizzle. So what's, what's the um, humidity? I'm sure you have a weather station there. What's the current humidity? Not, nothing mm-hmm. to speak of. Yeah. I, I would know. So it's like yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's wet because it's raining. That's as wet as it gets. So here in Atlanta, but, I still, five years almost I've been here. I can't adjust to the humidity. It's 50 degrees outside, but 99% humidity. Actually, currently it's 100% because it's raining. And I've just even, been pouring even this sweat. this time of year. Yes. Even this time it of year. It never oh stops. I've been pouring sweat all day because, you know, I stay warm the same way um, whales and seals stay warm. There's a there's a layer of blubber all around my body keeping the, the heat in. And when the humidity won't let the air, uh, you know, transform off of my body, I am so miserable. Yeah, it's I open the, the, the window and turn the fan on and it's 55 and you'd think that would be chilly. But no, I'm sweating because it's so humid. And I, I just longed. I, I literally said, I, I want to be in Arizona. I want to be in the desert where there is no humidity. And, um, you know, the only negative there is you can't wear contacts. But otherwise, it's such a wonderful thing. Well, I'll, I'll give you a weather story, right? I, on Friday, I had to drive from San Diego to Phoenix, which is about a five-hour drive. I left San Diego, and it was flooding rains. I mean, flash flood, you know, walls collapsing, mudslides, the whole bit. It was just out of control. Uh, you drive out of San Diego in these mountain sort of areas to get out to the desert. And we, I went through that sort of weather and then fog. I mean, like no visibility at all. We're all traveling at 50 mile an hour on the freeway, just trying to uh, get through the whole thing. You go down the other end of the mountains and you hit the, the flatlands, the El Centro, the flat desert of California, and it's sunny 
like nothing's happened. I mean, it's just crazy. So you keep driving, you get to Yuma, which is about hour and a half, dust storms. And I'm talking, they've got like sand dunes and all that sort of thing out there. And the sand is like the Sahara, just this coming across the road. There were parts of the road you couldn't see. It was covered in sand. And you felt like you're in the middle of Libya. I mean, it was just nuts. And then you drive through that, you get on the other side of Yuma, it starts raining. And then it's just this rain and rain and rain until you get eventually to Phoenix. And then the rain eventually sort of stops and dissipates. And you think, what just happened? I just went through so many different weather cycles in five hours. It's, that's nuts. That's a day in the life out here. I have this little weather thingy that sits on my desk. And uh, uh, currently it says that it is 66 degrees in here but it's also 63% humidity. So while I am, that's in my house right now. And so while I am at a temperature which would should be considered cool, I'm dying. I'm hot because the air, the, the heat has nowhere to go. The air can't absorb any more of it. And so I'll be whining about that for the duration of the show. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, buy some rice, I guess. Um, <laughs> And, you know, buy these big 50-pound sacks of rice and just drop one in each room and slit it and re- replace them every few months. Well, okay, let's talk about that. The, the the myth that you can dry your electronics out by putting them in rice, think about that. If rice were really that absorbent, couldn't you cook it by just setting it out on the counter? Because cooking well, rice not only is heating it, but it's rehydrating it. If it could really absorb that much temperature, uh, that much water... Couldn't you just leave but, it out on the counter? No, because there's not enough humidity. Well, there is the in Georgia, of, my friend. Well, okay. <laughs> Maybe you should try that in Georgia just just to see. But, you know, in, in Texas, which is, you know, I'm kind of midway between y'all two. It's only like 44% humidity here. So there's not quite enough humidity here. Yeah, someday, I was telling my wife, I'm going to be rich and famous and powerful uh, because of my dashing good looks and and smooth charm um and i'm going to have not a a, just an hvac system but it's going to be humidity controlled like a museum i'm going to make sure that every place i go in my house the humidity is a constant like 31 (laughs) percent just damp enough to not dry out the sinuses but no more and she looked at me like i was insane and i am i get that but still a man can dream yeah you know without dreams what's the point (laughs) so you've been dreaming of gainful employment for a while now and that may actually happen for you. That is correct. I have a job interview on Monday. So tomorrow, by the time this show has come out, I will have had at least the first interview and we'll see how well it goes. But yep, first interview of the year. And maybe, I don't know if I'll, you know, if it's the last one, hopefully it's because I got the job and not because I couldn't get any more interviews. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, I know the, uh, the thousands upon thousands of, of dollars that we pay you each week, uh, is enough to make you independently wealthy, but you like to work because you want to give back to the community. Pretty much, you know, the the more I have, the more I can give and the more I can spend on me. So, uh, you know, and a happy me is a happy community. Let's face it. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, whatever. So uh, that bit fell short. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> and Miles, in your travels, you not only went to, uh, to the far reaches of Arizona through Hill and Dale and Storm, but you also went to south of the border to uh, get involved, uh, to take advantage of some of that cheap medical care that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I said back in December that I was 
threatening to go to Mexico and get my teeth cleaned because I thought it was a interesting, weird thing. And anyway, I didn't because at the time I had scheduled a trip and then I got some work stuff that kind of got into the middle of it. So I pushed it out. Eventually I had to go to San Diego on business. So I thought, well, I'm you know going to be driving right past there. Why not drop in? Oh man, that was a, that was fun. Um, Okay, so this is sort of hard to explain, so you're going to have to visualize what I went through. So I'll explain what happens. You drive along the freeway, you get on the other side of, of Yuma, this town and uh, the borders between Arizona and California, and then you take this exit and you head south one mile. Well, one mile from the freeway is the U.S.-Mexico border. So what they've done is on the U.S. side, they have this massive parking lot. You drive in there for like $6 a day, you can park your car. So you park, you get out of your car, you walk to the end of the parking lot, and there's this gate, you walk through it, and you're in Mexico. I mean, it's that's it. It's that simple. There's no entrance for Mexican customs or immigration. You don't have to do anything. You just walk in, and you go from a parking lot to this bizarre town of street vendors and and you know, anything you can imagine. And then all the businesses are either dentists, pharmacists, or optical opticians. And there's like five blocks of this. And you go in and it's this fe- medical fiesta. And as you're walking in, you'll see like Mexican military with, you know, walking around in, in combat fatigues with assault rifles, just walking along the street. And then you'll see um, uh, police officers everywhere. So you kind of just have to get used to it. It is kind of the, this, this is the wild west, but I went in and I had an appointment with a dentist that I found on the internet and, uh, for 50 bucks, I got my teeth cleaned, which was about a third of the price here. But the, the level and the quality of dental care, I got to give these guys props. It was twice as good as I've ever had with a U.S. dentist. Um, and I got to talk to, it's funny, I got talking to the dentist afterwards and we were talking about Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff. Cause as I was there, the Mexican peso had devalued to, uh, 22 peso to one US dollar. It was ridiculous. Yeah. That's um, pretty low. Yeah. And, and he had said it's never been that low in his life. And this had all happened since the, um, the Trump thing. And, uh, so I was sort of saying, hey, maybe you should get a bit of Bitcoin here, you know? So he's kind of into it. So maybe I converted the dentist over there. But then uh, as I'm leaving, my wife says to me that, um, you know, my daughter needed some antibiotics. And you've seen those things called Z-Packs. Yeah. I, I don't, you, yep. you know. Azithromycin. You get, that's it. Thank you. Um, well, the average, interesting thing, the average price of those in the US, if you go to Walgreens or Target or somewhere like that, you'll pay between like $25 and $39 for a, a six-pill Z-Pack. Um, so I thought, well, I'm in Mexico. I've heard the pharmacies are really cheap. Maybe I can pick up some antibiotics because you don't need a script there. You can walk in with no script, and as long as it's not a narcotic, they'll sell it to you. So... I went up to the counter, I said to this lady, and they all speak perfect English, by the way, right? So I say to this lady, okay, I need to get, you know, a Z-Pack. She, uh, I said, how much is that? And I'm thinking it's going to be, you know, 20 bucks. She goes, 
well, I have a bottle of the pills which contain, I think, something like four, six, like 30 pills in a bottle, right? And she, and I said, well, how much is that? Thinking it's going to be expensive. $3.99. <laughs> oh, I'll take five. Give me five bottles of this stuff. So I come back with like this big batch of Z-Packs and I'm standing in line and I'm realizing, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to walk through U.S. Customs and Immigrations with this big pile of pharmaceuticals that I don't have a script for. Or what could possibly go wrong here? So I talked to the couple in front of me on the line and I said, is this going to fly? Am I going to be able to get through? And they're going, yes, no problem. She said, they won't sell you anything in the pharmacies in Mexico that can't get through customs because... You know, otherwise you're not going to buy it. So they're going to stock it with inventory. So if they'll sell it to you, the customs guy is going to let you through no sweat. So, okay, I get up to the line. I get to the guy. I show him my passport. And he looks at it and he goes, what's in the bag? And I said, well, it's uh, antibiotics. He goes, get out of here. <laughs> and he just sent me to the door and off I went. And that was my trip to Mexico. Um, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, you want to go and get pharmaceuticals. Oh, man. Here's a parallel story. Earlier this week, I uh, have a friend of mine who's a dermatologist, and he had um, he's in California, and he had told me that my daughter, who's got some acne, needed a certain type of uh, prescription-level treatment for her skin. So uh, I, he says, look, I'll send you the script. You go and fill it at one of your local pharmacies. So, okay, we go to the pharmacy, and uh, I get a phone call. Yeah, well, we got these, uh, this script, these pills, uh, that you gotta get. And, uh, I just want to let you know they're, they're not the cheapest. I'm thinking, what do you mean by not the cheapest? Like, I've got insurance, right? It's gonna cover it. Um, 700 bucks. I was like, what? $700 for some acne pills? Yeah, apparently that's, uh, what pills cost these days, apparently. Um, but then I find out if the generics are 15 bucks. I mean, it's a mess out there in pharmaceutical land. I don't even want to go there with this. But if I knew that, I would have picked them up in Mexico too. So I mean, you know. at that price, it's worth a trip just to go and get them. I wonder if oh, you yeah. could, can you do it online? I mean, is well, that even can, legal? You you can, but I've heard a lot of really bad stories about pill manufacturers out of China. No, I mean, and from India those people, and, like, could you go to those people and say, "Do you have a website?" Some do, um, but I'm not sure if I recognize where the website is or who the company is. I, I, it seems a bit iffy to me to do it online. I'm not saying that it isn't iffy to go and do it in yeah. a pharmacy in Mexico, right? So but, how do you know? Yeah, that's the thing. How do you know you got good drugs? You, you, in the U.S., right, we have the FDA, and and you you have a certain trust there, not because you trust the pharmacy, but because you trust that the pharmacy will lose his license and probably go to jail if he's not on the up and up. And so nobody wants to take that risk. Um, and that, that would be my immediately immediate concern there is since there is not a central authority that they're answering to, you have to just trust that the guy you're buying from is a decent dude. And that the guy he bought from is a decent dude. Yeah. Um, the only regulatory agency going on here is the free market. I mean, the bottom line is if they sell crap drugs, you're not going to go back and buy more. And when I went into that that particular store, it was packed with customers, mainly seniors, senior citizens who are who don't have necessarily um, maybe their medic Medicare's not covering these drugs, or they're having to pay an enormous amount of money for medication. 
So they will make an annual trip and go and get 12 months worth in one trip. Um, I think that I'm going by the basis, uh, this is risky, but I'm going on the basis that if those stores get a bad reputation, they don't stay in business. Right, which is why I would consider purchasing from an online outlet of that retailer specifically. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for the free market policing itself. That's true. There really is. And, um, you know, one side of you says, well, you've, you know, when governments intervene in these things and they put all their regulations in, you get a $700, you know, acne medicine. And when the free market does it, you take a little bit of a risk. You've got to be on, on alert and on guard like you do everywhere, but the free market title looks after itself. So I don't know. I took the ladder and, uh, fingers crossed. If I, you if know, I come in here with the third arm next week, you know, something went wrong. Right. But at the same time, you wonder how much of the FUD that you hear out there, how much of it is released by big pharmacy to keep you from going to other countries? You know, if you have a monopoly or a ogopoly, is that the right pronunciation? Ogopoly. Yeah. Yeah, You know, if you have that, then you can set the price. And if the and if you convince the government to pass a law saying everyone must purchase from you, then all of a sudden that becomes legal and you can charge whatever you want to. And people are stuck, forced to buy into this broken system. And then so at that point, man, it makes me, you know, I could drive eight hours to the border um, and pick that stuff up and come back and save money over what some stuff cost. Um, and you know, and it, it doesn't would, cost, but what is what it's charged. So I would mm-hmm. then let you be the middleman, Seth. You could then sell it to me at a markup, and we both save money, right? And and right. But then that's not legal, right? Because you're distributing the drugs in the U.S. So never mind. Well, well, no, it it depends, you know, because there's nothing that stops me from going to Walmart and picking up some, you know, Nyquil or Dayquil for you. Right, but and you, if I'm you reimbursing, you, if you make a profit, that's when it it becomes illegal. You know, hey, eight eight hours worth of mileage at fifty five cents a mile—that's a lot <laughs> of a expense reimbursement before I get into profit. So <laughs> it's just interesting. I can't remember the exact details of it, but it was something that I I read about or heard about or read on the box of a uh, box of post toasties or something um was that the the international authorities in the early 90s decided that developing countries weren't bound by um um copyright and and uh copyright's not the word what's the word patent uh laws for medications so for example africa can rip off all the the age drugs it wants um, and not necessarily legally, but there won't, the laws won't be enforced by sort of an agreement among uh, organizations because those countries uh, can't afford to buy U.S. medications and their people can't afford to live without it. So there, there, there may be some, some things there where they can actually make the exact pill that Pfizer makes um, legally because they're, you know, Mexico is a developing country and so they can, they can rip them off legally um if not well uh, maybe not enforced if not fully legally and then sell them back and so i could certainly see why pfizer would hate that um but at the same time i could see why the the company uh, the mexican or the the african or whatever company would want to do that 
Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Look, I mean, I'm a free market guy. So I, the thing that's really encouraging here is to break free of uh, the olig- oligarch, the the you know oligarchy that Seth was alluding to, break free of the interconnectedness of of regulation and law with you know monopolistic trade practice, and actually go to a place that just has you know you choose from one of twelve pharmacies on the street. You walk in, you can check the price, you can pick the one you want, you can look at the quality of the product, you can make your own choice, and if you're willing to accept the fact that that's You've got to be streetwise. You know, you've got to be aware, just like you would if you were buying a dress at a store or you were buying a new computer. You do your research and and you do all of that. If you're okay with that, um, I'm all for it. So I I can't say anything but really positive things from my trip. I got the best teeth clean I've ever had. Um, I got drugs at ten cents on the dollar. And I didn't have to deal with any issues and the U.S. immigration guy seemed to not care because there was me and a thousand other people behind me and Lionel had to come through with the same thing. So, so you, didn't have to, you didn't have to show any ID to go in, but you had to show no. a passport to come back. Yeah, you need a passport. You, it used to be you didn't. You used to be able to do it on a driver's license, but I think about maybe after 9-11 they changed that. Crap, so that means I gotta get my passport. passport. It is I've never left. It is kind of if you think about it, it is kind of scary how easy it would have been to walk into the United States with, you know, a driver's license or if somebody, you know, got a fake one or whatever. But at least with the passports, they're all electronically they got the RFID thing in them and the whole bit. So my guess is that it's all interlinked on systems and you're not gonna get in unless you're a known commodity to them. Yeah, well, yeah, so that way, whenever you pull it out of your foil traveling case, whoever's right there at the uh, at the checkpoint can skim your information, and you never know it. Hey, you know it's funny you should say that because right on the on the U.S. side of the border, there's a little guy with a stand there, and uh, just as you come into the U.S., he sells uh, you know wallets and hats and belts and stuff like that. And the top line on his thing, the the most popular product. Or RFID protected wallets for your passport. <laughs> so, yeah, but you have to take it out to show them. And yeah. so, you know, all it takes is somebody close with a scanner right there because your RFID is, isn't unidirectional. It's an omnidirectional broadcast. And so, you know, and it transmits all your info. So right there, baby, identity theft 101. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I could see that happening. But, but once um, the Great Wall of America is built, that'll solve all that. Yeah, I wonder if that was interesting. I did it on Thursday and Trump got inaugurated on Friday. And I was thinking, I wonder what would have happened if I tried to do this next week. I mean, <laughs> do you think I would have been greeted with the same level of positive reception by the locals? I don't know. Well, you would have had to climb stairs to get to the gate at the top of the wall and then climb them back down. <laughs> so, you know, you get your you get your exercise in, make you even more healthy. See, Trump's going to make America great again one step at a time. I think as long as you're spending U.S. American dollars, you're their best friend. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But we just got to get them on Bitcoin. That's all. <laughs> All right. So we did allude to that. Um, I'm not going to make this a political episode, but uh, again, another time I had to look at the protesters and say, what are you protesting? The guy you, you didn't like was elected president two months ago. 
why why are you protesting the fact that he's inaugurated why he's that he's going into the office that he won two months ago uh i don't i don't understand it was it was a protest without a purpose was my my overall impression of it and then the next day the women's march again felt to me like a protest without a purpose we're angry at trump for things he hasn't done but we think he will um i just didn't get it how dare you say the media has lied and made up stories about him mark i I did he's done lots of stuff bad he's hitler (laughs) but he has the media said so he hasn't as president so that what does that matter are you calling the media liars how dare you Um, impinge upon the good reputation of the american media outlet system i'm not sure at what point i called anybody a liar but you know if the if the the wooden nose fits um we'll go with it i tell you what's really noticeable though i saw a you know how they have those white house press briefings and they used to they used to always have some some dude who looked like he was the, the you know the one of the lead guys on a news anchor on the 6 p.m. TV news and he'd be up there sort of talking about what the president was saying or what's going on this week and then they'd take questions and he'd you know one by one he'd kind of give them no answer and you know but it just entertained the press and it was just like a big sort of spin session and uh, I watched one on Saturday and I'm I'm not sure if the guy who did it was Trump's new press secretary but he comes up oh man he's like Mr. Tough Guy. <laughs> He's like, right, here's what happened, and I'm not taking any questions. So you can, oh, shut up. You know, <laughs> and then he just dictates the whole thing off. And I couldn't believe it. I said, wow, that's such a difference, isn't it, between one president and another? <laughs> I did. I, of course, I was working during the day. I didn't get to, to watch any of the festivities at the time, but I did get, I did later watch on youtube the uh trump's inaugural address uh, two things i uh, struck me about it one it was only 16 minutes long uh, i consider that a positive um and two it was a stump speech it was the same stump speech he gave back in october um I, you know I, whether that's good or bad i'm, I'm gonna hold uh, comment on that but it really didn't seem to be anything more than everything he'd already said we're going to do we're going to do these things and make america great um okay great we heard that message did we really need to hear it again but maybe we did i don't know um Me, the, the people who liked him liked it people who didn't like him didn't like it and i do think that we're in for um a level of whining that has henceforth been unprecedented um <laughs> and it's both going to be fascinating and frustrating uh because people have already begun to whine about things that haven't happened um, and, and I get it. People did the same thing when Obama was elected. You know, the, the, uh, the conservative right was just all apoplectic about how he was going to ruin the country. You know, well, he's, he had eight years and the country's still doing pretty good. So we'll see. Although I don't recall the uh, conservative right rioting, burning cars and smashing windows because of how bad the next president was going right. to be. I mean, those, so. those people that set a random limo on fire that again that's that's just stupidity on parade right there you don't even know who that guy is you just know that he's rich and you hate rich people so let's burn it um whatever i don't get it I, I, i'm glad i don't get it i'll never get it all right moving on to a rant from our listeners greg says that privacy is important to him he says mark seems to have difficulty understanding the position of privacy advocates like me Part of my reasoning for fighting for privacy is a desire for fairness. 
Admittedly, life is not fair and never will be. However, good people should still strive to make life as fair as possible. Knowledge is power. In ancient history, there was a balance of power. If I was walking down the hunting trail, you could see that I was there. But in most circumstances, I could also see that you were there. Fast forward to today, and it's obviously obvious that there is an imbalance of power. Unknown people are collecting information about you, storing it and aggregating it, massaging it, and making decisions based on their superior knowledge. Decisions that might end up affecting your credit rating, travel plans, job availability, insurance rates, or whatever. I'll side with the idea that data collection should be ephemeral and limited. I think that part of Mark's difficulty in understanding the position of privacy advocates is that he just doesn't think like an evil mastermind. It's difficult for a good person to imagine how a tool or technology could be used for evil purposes. I think that was a compliment, Greg, and I'll take it as such. Um, I'm a good person and not an evil mastermind. Um, I don't, again, I can't see your point. I've read this, you know, uh, obviously before the show and, and today. Um, I, don't un- I don't see how somebody knowing something that is publicly available information is unfair. Guys, any comment? I'm. Um- Go, you know, we can rewind to whatever episode that was and just replay it. Cause I mean, you know, like I say, I privacy, it, it's not about big government. It's about get off my lawn. So that's. Yeah. I was looking at, I was just sort of, as you were reading it through, I was listening to his arguments and, and his description of, um, uh, ancient history balance of power. Life is not fair. I'm not sure what that's got to do with privacy. Maybe my understanding of privacy differs from, I I don't see this as a, as a holistically, you know, bad thing. I think when you see an option where there is not a, a, a reasonableness in what somebody asks for you to provide with what you're going to willing to give back, you call it. That's fine. It doesn't mean that everything's bad. It just means when you see something like that, you know, call it out. Fair enough. Maybe they'll change their ways. I think I heard Evernote, uh, was it in January completely? Uh, they changed their privacy statement or something on their website. Customers went nuts crazy on this sort of thing. And the CEO gets on YouTube or something and says, look, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're backing away from what we just said. We're going back to the, the old privacy policy because we care about your privacy. Okay. That's good. Customers didn't like what they were doing. They voted with their voices and the, company heard it and made a change that's all i'm looking for i mean and i think that if we do lots of little things like that companies will realize it's no longer profitable to be you know evil masterminds i hope yeah so greg i'm going to pick on you when you're not here to defend yourself but your argument says that uh somebody collecting information about you when you don't have information about them is unfair there's an imbalance of power because google knows everything about you and you don't know anything about google so would you then think it's okay if everybody knew everything? If it was a fair playing field and you had no privacy but nobody else had any privacy either, would that be okay? I'm going to I'm going to s- suspect that you would say no to that. Therefore your argument about imbalance doesn't really hold water if you can't reverse it around and say a balanced lack of privacy is acceptable. Just saying. And uh <laughs> 
One other bit of listener feedback. Kevin offers one more vote for 10-minute tirades. Long-time listener, first-time emailer, if that's a word. I really enjoyed the 10-minute tirade show. It's fun to see what each host brought to the table and what was on the uh, on their heart and mind. And then others helped them understand uh, a different point of view. Hope y'all, hey, I'm from Denton, Texas. Had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to great shows in 2017. Thanks for what you do. So, Kevin, thank you for being a listener. And, uh... You're, you're right down in my hometown there uh, area, Denton, Texas. I was a, a little farther south of you, but uh, spent some time at UNT. Yep. And since you're asking for good shows this year, okay, I guess <laughs> we'll try to do a couple <laughs> throughout step the year. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> that was fun. It uh, really were. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, we've had so far two people have said they like the 10 minute tirade ideas. Um, in our world, that is a landslide of evidence. <clears throat> Um, so we will definitely be doing more, uh, 10 minute tirades. Um, we, uh, we have a call, uh, out to your listeners. We were talking about this before the show. What would make that show, uh, better, we think would be a fourth, uh, producer host person to feed us the questions and keep the timer and that sort of thing. Um, and so if anybody's interested in that, uh, let me know, Mark at elementopi.com. And uh, we'll we'll see what we can do. But it, it uh, Seth's uh, one of his things he thought would be doing it like a you know high school debate style. None of us knows the questions ahead of time, only the 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 moderator. And so he says, Mark, you now have to argue that the sun is a giant ball of blue cheese. Go, and I've got ten minutes to do it. Uh, that would certainly test our skills as uh, as orators, and could be a lot of fun as long as you don't make me argue something silly like that. So. If you're interested, let me know. Mark at LMNOP.com. I think that would be, like I say, it, it would take that to the next level and it might, it might cause the show to break down totally. Um, but it could be fun. <laughs> All right. So, uh, now we're just going to jump straight into the, the discussion, taking a bite, uh, uh, biting the big apple. Uh, and this is, it's not news anymore. Um, it was, uh, well, January 5th, so three weeks ago, uh, this became a thing. But essentially, and I'm going to really break it down super simple, and then Seth is going to fill in the uh, the basics. Um, a An appellate court, I believe it was the Ninth Circuit, yes, Ninth U.S. Circuit, um, which is one of the most liberal uh, circuit courts uh, there over uh, California, Nevada, that area, um, uh, said that it is okay for app makers to sell a uh, sue apple for their monopolistic practices in the app store there was a, a prior case where the judge said no uh store uh, owners or app uh, developers have no uh standing to sue apple for being monopolistic the ninth circuit has now said yes they can and so unless it's uh, appealed to a higher court i.e the the u.s supreme court um it is now okay to sue apple because you don't like them for having a monopoly in the app store ready go seth okay well first of all this is only saying that they have the right to sue this isn't the trial and apple didn't lose and apple has to open up the uh, walled garden of the iphone invulnerable security network that we all know you know nothing bad's ever happened to anybody who owned an iphone Um, but so what it breaks down to is the fact that if I, if you go back to the old days when it was Microsoft windows, 
you had your website that you designed and you offered software for download or even older, you sold CDs or DVDs or USB keys to, and you distributed your program, your content, your intellectual property, and then somebody could choose to buy it and install it on their system. Now, if you chose to go through, you know, a Best Buy or something like that, then obviously Best Buy is going to buy your stuff and they're going to, you know, buy in bulk and you're going to sell it to them cheaper, but people still have the option to go to your website. But now with the Apple App Store, the only way to get programs on the iPhone is to go through the App Store. And since Apple maintains the App Store, Apple gets a small cut of whatever price is charged for purely logistic reasons. And, you know, it's it's not, I mean, they're offering a service, so they should make money, but then you don't have any other way. You're at the mercy of the iPhone police who sometimes issue guidelines and other times abide by those guidelines in in accepting or rejecting or pulling apps from the app store. So if they don't like the fact that your flashlight can also make fart sounds and pull you, you have no recourse and no way to get your awesome farting flashlight out to the public. And uh, this case gives you um, the right to make your stuff available to go on the iPhone outside of Apple's control. If it goes through. So you have the right to try now to force Apple to make a way to allow you to distribute your stuff directly, cutting them out of the process. So Apple argues that they are like a mall in which vendors have to buy space within the mall to sell their wares. Um, And they pay rent to the mall uh, for a certain fee and they can sell whatever they want uh, from their mall uh, stall, but they pay them all for the right to be there. Um, that And in, in this case, instead of a flat rate, it's 30% of everything you sell. So that's the Apple stance. Um, and the, the uh, lower court said, okay, we accept that as a reality, that you are simply selling space in your store in the same way that a mall owner, owner sells space in their store. The appeal process was, okay, they sell stuff in, uh, they, they sell space in their store, but they also make you sign an agreement that says you will never sell your stuff anywhere else. And um, they say that certain devices, certain owners of certain devices can only shop at their mall. So it would be, you know, if that were the case, it would be anybody who drives a Chevy could only buy bed sheets at Stonebriar Mall, ever. Um, and that's essentially how it works. If you have an iPhone, you can only buy apps through the App Store. So the, the, the circuit court said, okay, we agree that this model doesn't really hold up for those two reasons. One, you have a captive market in that anybody who has iOS installed on any device can only go to this one mall, and you forbid anybody who has a stall at that mall, regardless of whatever business they have, to sell products anywhere else because they can only sell at that mall. So if you rent space in that mall, you cannot sell at any other malls or in the street corners or out of the trunk of your car. You must sell through that mall. So the the U.S. Court of Appeals said, based on that, we think you have a right to sue Apple for monopolistic practices. 
Is that, yeah, is that a good so. summation? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, I was trying to think this through as you were explaining it. There's, um, there's two parts of this. One is Apple takes a 30% cut on whatever you sell. So they, they take, that's an enormous cut. Uh, but if you're selling volumes, maybe, uh, maybe the cut varies based on volumes. I'm not exactly sure. I know it's 30% I do. across the board. It is across the board. Okay. It's, it's, that's a lot. That's a lot. However, um, if you were to go and rent real estate in a very classy, high traffic, uh, retail mall, you would also be paying a percentage of your revenue and a very high rent to be there. So, okay. So that maybe that's not. That that's something that the market would balance out, right? If people want to pay that, they'll be there, and if they can't afford it, they won't. Okay, but to only allow you to be in that mall is is not right. And but ha- okay, having said that, you cannot restrict somebody from wanting to sell their wares wherever they want to sell them, right? They should be able to sell them on CD, on download, on their website, on wherever if they want. But as a business owner. If you can get a hundred times the amount of traction and customers by going to that mall and paying 30% to be there, you're probably going to do it. I mean, what, 70% of something is better than a hundred percent of nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So you may as well take the, take the haircut and be in their mall. But it's that, that's not what I think their lawsuit is about. Their lawsuit's not about that. Their lawsuit is about you have to be in their mall when you can't go anywhere else. And that's not good because if we don't have competition, maybe there are other malls out there that could become just as popular, if not more so. If we don't have competition, Apple will take the 30% and make it 40 or 50 or 60 or 90. And what are you going to do? You got nowhere else you can go. They can just turn the, turn the faucet to whatever, you know, degree they want and they, they make the money. So I get it. Um, I don't think that I think Apple has had a long history of trying to do this sort of thing, but in this particular case, they've really got you know Apple app developers over a barrel. Um, having said that, I'll add to it though. I believe this is a short-lived problem, and this is this is Miles being a speculator and just trying to predict the future. But I've been following a lot of the. Uh, advancements going on in things like autonomous driving and autonomous cars, robotics, I guess what you would consider the next generation of technology, which is happening right now. And you're going to see a very strong player in Google creating operating systems for the cars from the major manufacturers because they cannot do it. And I think when that happens... Everybody who wants to write some sort of utility of a software is not going to think about an iPhone. They're going to think about a platform, and they're going to want that one application to run on phones, watches, cars, TVs, and everything else, and I think that's going to nullify Apple's position. But that's just me being a futurist. Having said that, coming back to your point, Apple shouldn't be forcing you to be only in their mall and nowhere else. Now, where that mo- uh, that analogy breaks down a little bit, the, the the mall analogy, is that take Rovio, for example. They made Angry Birds, and they sold Angry Birds on the iPhone and on, on the Android App Store and uh, Windows devices. It was everywhere. So you could get Angry Birds on your Roku. You could get any Angry Birds anywhere. So it is not true that they're saying you can only sell in our App Store, but it is saying that to reach this audience of millions of Apple device 
uh, Apple OS devices, you can only sell in our store. So it's a it's a partial truth there to say that they're saying you can only sell anywhere else, but for Apple only devices. So, so restricting, saying that uh, leaving out all other devices and saying just Apple devices, it is true that the only legal way to get an app is through the Apple uh, App Store. Now, one of the first reasons anybody ever jailbroke a phone was to install a separate app store. The the Cedia app store, I believe, was the, the biggest one at the time. Uh, and they made use of, you know, uh, uh, faults in the Safari browser and things like that to root your phone, to jailbreak your phone so that you can install other apps. And I remember, uh, this was six or eight years ago, there was a, a flashlight app that allowed you to tether uh, your your iPhone as a Wi-Fi hotspot. So it went in the store as an iPhone app, as a flashlight app, and it passed Apple's basic scanners, but it would actually allow you to turn your iPhone into a Wi-Fi hotspot, uh, despite what your um, uh, carrier, in this case, AT&T, had the, back then had the uh, exclusive AT&T charges for hotspot. So this was a way to bypass AT&T's restrictions and Apple's restrictions, but you first had to jailbreak your phone to do it. So this has been around for a long time, but I remember I started this whole thing by saying the only legal way. Technically speaking, jailbreaking the phone is an illegal process. Now there have been some allowances made. I think it was uh, who the an, uh, the Library of Congress. It was some odd group had the ability to to uh, allow loopholes in the copyright. And the I think it was the Library of Congress said that mm-hmm. you can that jailbreaking your phone, while not technically legal, is not something that will be pursued, prosecuted. But still, it is a violation of law and, and it's uh you're taking advantage of a leniency in the um um enforcement of that law but still that the law co- the this court which has been around for a while this case rather it's been around for a while comes back to the point that if you own an ios device the only legal place to sell apps is through the app store that takes a 30 percent cut and they believe that is uh in the very definition of antitrust monopolistic behaviors and I think I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I uh, I think I agree as well. It's just, you know, I mean, you know, well, the thing is, Apple maintains their walled garden ability of saying, well, we regulate the apps and therefore we guarantee the experience. If you open it up, then that that myth gets further shattered. So. I personally think this is one the courts got right. How would you go about force? I mean, Apple would have to totally redesign their iOS no, they in order. They, they would just have to have a checkbox like on Android that says allow installation from third party sources. That's it. Yeah, they're not, they're not going to make it easy for third party sources to get in your phone or your iPad. That's for sure. Um, and they'll play the same game that, Every other large fortune, you know, 500 corporation does when they lose a lawsuit or they, you know, they, they don't want to lose a competitive position. They'll just change the loss of a lawsuit into a difficulty for a customer so that in order for the customer to go to the simplest option, they will return back to what Apple wanted in the first place and they'll bypass the entire legal system altogether. Um, that would be my prediction. And Miles, well, to your point that this is a, a case that isn't that is a much ado about soon to be nothing. 
uh, Q4 2015. So this is going or uh, going back there. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Q2 2016. Uh, this is going back a ways. The worldwide, according to Gartner, uh, Apple had 13% of the iOS, uh, the the mobile OS market share. Now in the right. U.S., it's more like 40%, but worldwide, it's 13%. So you can see, to your point, Miles, this is something that isn't going to mean much um, overall very soon. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't think that this is the. It's not a good precedent to set, though, uh, going forward. I don't know if Apple is going to be a player going forward in the in the technology space like they have been in the past. I doubt it. Um, I don't think that they really. I don't think that they're really able to do a lot of different things. They're very good at uh, doing a handful of things and nothing more. And then when they get spread too thin, they really mess it up. They have a long history of trying to be a software company and screwing that up. They have a long uh, history of trying to do, um, like, uh, dial-up services like AOL and that sort of thing, and that never worked. Um, They've had a lot of failures, and it's mostly because they pick their... They pick maybe half a dozen, or maybe not even that, three things that they do very, very well, and they focus heavily on that. And I think that our world is becoming far less of a phone or a tablet or a PC thing, and it's becoming more of a, a wide platform where you distribute stuff on anything and who knows what it's going to be. And I don't know if Apple's going to have a place in that market going forward. Maybe, but I, I think more of a... Maybe, you know, they'll become the Tiffany of that sort of market rather than the Walmart, you know. But here, here's the thing. They have 13% of the mobile OS market and are currently sitting on over $40 billion in cash. So you can have 10% of the global market. That's a pretty big market. And 10% of that pie is billions. So, I mean, yeah, maybe, Miles, they aren't the number one player, but... You don't have to be number one to be very valuable. So to counter your point, I don't think it matters, you know, because Apple has the fanboy, the the snobbery baked into their brand so well that, you know, they're going to overcharge for stuff and people are going to buy it because it's Apple. Yeah. And to, yeah. to, to counter those numbers a little bit, I said in the U.S. it's more like 40%. Looking at the most recent numbers I could find, February 2016 iOS was 44% of the U.S. market. So what that means, and then the iOS, the the OS is only important because of the hardware. Um, So that means that four out of every 10 phones sold in the U.S. was manufactured by Apple. The other five out of 10 phones um, sold in the U.S. was split between Huawei, Samsung, uh, Motorola, uh, you know, all those guys. So they're all getting a piece of a larger part of the pie. But Apple is by far the dominant handset manufacturer or handset seller uh, in in the U.S. And so from that point of view, you can look at it and it's a, you know, to, um, you know, if you're a, an app developer, we have to give 30% of our profits or give up 40% of the market. So it's uh, it's certainly a thing that that you should be concerned about, but I think the trends are showing. In terms of worldwide, the trends are showing Apple is declining in the U.S. Over the last five years, Apple's market share has been steadily growing. In 2012, it was about 30 uh, percent. Uh, in 2016, 
he was 44%. So they're, whatever they're doing, it's working. Uh, now, are you looking at um, shipments for that quarter or overall numbers? Uh, just subscriber held, uh, uh, sh- owned smartphones. Not shipments, okay. but sales. Okay. Because if it's per that quarter, you know, there's always a big bump after right. a new iPhone release. So, and and again, the, the most recent data I'm able to find is February, 2016. Uh, of course I didn't spend any time other than while we were talking about it, looking for it. But so we're looking at, you know, almost a year ago, but I suspect that when these, the data is available for all of 2016, we're going to see that trend has continued. They're gradually stepping up in handset sales, not down. In the U.S., yeah. in the rest yeah. of the world, they're a blip on the radar. You know what's um, an interesting dynamic in this is that as you look at the buying practice, the psychology of the buy, um, there's a portion of the, that market, that percentage, which, um, to use your term, Seth, is the fanboy market, and that is the, the diehard I'm an Apple user, I'll always be an Apple user, and I'll buy nothing but Apple because I'm loyal to the brand. And they're the guys who will line up in front of the App Store, you know, the Apple Store at uh, five in the morning to get the, the new phone the day it comes out. But that's not the bulk of the 40-something percent of phone owners who have iPhones. The vast majority of those went to their local mobile phone provider store, T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, whoever it is, and that's US or, you know, whatever it is in, in your country. But they go to the phone provider and they walk in because they need to make phone calls. They need SMS messaging and they need data and they want to carry it with them. And they've been presented with an array of different devices that are there. And the, the devices that they've heard of, Apple, Samsung, a few of the others, they all look at them and they try them out. And the salesperson will steer them one way or the other. But at the end of the day, when they make a decision about which device they're going to buy, and it comes down to the economics of that decision, it comes down to who's got the best financing plan. Because they're all, and Apple was what, a seven, $800 device to pay cash for it? And they're going to say, look, 99 bucks, and you know, you pay us $30 a month or $50 a month or whatever it is until, you know, for the next two years. Uh, to have the phone, and that's what people are buying. They're buying an economic financing plan, and then by accepting that as as part of their overall budget and expenses for their household, they then choose all of the devices on the floor at a fairly equal range. And whether there's a $300 or a $200 HTC phone over there that would be perfectly well suited for what they want, no, they choose the iPhone because they're willing to sign up for debt. And that's the problem, I think, is that in the United States, we have a psychology of debt acceptance, which may not be the case in mainland China or in Southeast Asia or in Africa or in South America. And then as a result, Apple is playing to that mentality, and that's why there's such a high proliferation of iPhones. It's not because it's a better phone. It's not because... It's got something special the others don't have. Let's face it, they're all much of a muchness now. It comes down to just a predictable debt behavior of consumers, and they're buying those phones for that reason. Now, I don't want to get off the point of the the topic, but by falling prey to 
what I would call debt enslavement to get in there in the first place. They then secondly fall prey to being locked in to Apple and their walled garden. One of my and, neighbors, to illustrate your point, uh, mm-hmm. made the switch uh, a couple of years ago from Android to iPhone because they wanted to try the iPhone experience. That's really all they heard about it. It was supposed to be the premium experience. So they made the switch. The switch was painful and difficult getting all of their stuff from Google, from Android into the Apple ecosystem because they're windows people. They don't have Macs. It was, it was a very painful experience. Um, and once they got there, they didn't find it a better, uh, computing platform, but the pain was so much. I've literally heard this guy say, I'll never leave Apple again because it hurt too much to get here. So I, I'm invested in this ecosystem because I invested a lot to get here. And now I don't really care how good their phones are. I just don't want to go through that again. So I'm always going to buy Apple from now on. And I wonder if that might not be by design. Um, I would say it is. But I think that what what I don't understand is that every month they get that bill from the phone company. And it lists on there, here's what you've used in your, you know, maybe it's a $20 per line for all you can phone services for the for the phoning, and then you pay this amount for the data, and it's based on how much you get, and that's per line or whatever. And then you'll see, here's the equipment charges, like equipment rental or whatever they call it, which is that monthly fee you pay per device. If you've got a family of, you know, you, the wife, and a couple of kids – and everyone has to have an iPhone, you've got probably a three, $400 a month phone bill. Now, how is that sane to have a three or $400 a month phone bill? But this is what's happened. They sign up for that. So the pain the- goes on forever. And the problem is nobody cares about what you just said. And, you know, we'll be talking about this kind of stuff in our upcoming financial February. Stay tuned. That starts next week. Um, but the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter that this costs more or that it's a lot more over time. We as Americans could care less about what we have tomorrow. We have mortgaged our tomorrow and our children's tomorrow and our grandchildren's tomorrow. So we can have the shiny bobble now. You know, you look at the household budgets and household savings. Look at our government. The reason the government it operates in the deficit is because the majority of we, the people operate in the deficit and we don't see a financial cliff. 50 years away, we see shiny and that's all we care about. Well said. Yeah. The, the mindset of if you, if I can afford the payment, I can afford the thing is, is what both of you are describing. Um, AT&T's thing right now is 25 bucks a month per phone, um, gets you the latest, uh, either iPhone or Android phone for two years. And then at the end of two years, you upgrade your phone. And you keep paying that 25 bucks a month forever. So in my case, um, I, I'm not there yet, but in a few years, I will have five phone users in my house. So that's $125 a month just for service before I've used a minute of calls or a, a, a byte of data. Uh, I'm starting out at $125 a month just so I can have the new shiny every two years. The, the What's insidious about that is if you keep your phone for three years, you still keep paying the $25. And it doesn't go away. Now, as I understand it, you can call them up and say, I'm not trading in this phone, cancel that fee. And they can't not say it. They can't not do it. But most people aren't going to do that. 
they're just they're habituated to twenty five dollars a month is what I pay for my phone rental, um, and that's for two years. But at the end of two years, that twenty five dollars doesn't automatically go away. You have to take some step to go to, to make it go away or upgrade your phone. Um, I'm a three or four year uh, uh, phone guy myself. Uh, I, I don't, I think the shortest I've ever kept a phone was one year and it was a refurb piece of crap. And I, that was as far as I could live with it. Um, but my wife is using the one plus one and they're now up to the one plus three. It's about three or maybe four years old, uh, now. And, and she's fine with it. It still does the job. You know, it's that you, we throw that word obsolete around a lot of times. Sure. It's an obsolete phone, but it still makes calls and send texts and she does everything she needs it to do. And as long as the battery still takes a charge, uh, I don't see any reason to upgrade her. But when I do, I'm going to go plunk down cash and buy a device. I'm not going to buy, uh, rent the right to have a device periodically. And you see, and, and here's where they get you. It's $25 this month, and I'm not going to worry about next month, where I go buy my little crappy LG chocolate that costs $100 up front. So this costs, in people's minds, this piece of junk costs four times as much as that shiny new iPhone. And that is true for one month, but nobody thinks about the next month. They think I don't have a hundred dollars, but I have 25. So I'm going to get the thing that cost me $25 for the rest of my life. I'm not going to get the thing that cost me a hundred dollars. And in five months I'm ahead because well, man, financial February, hold it. (laughs) No, you're right. I've always bought phones. um, I've always found myself in situations where, traveling particularly going to other countries um you're always looking for an unlocked phone and that has by default forced me always into a situation where i've had to buy the phone outright and i i thought at the time you know when phones used to be two three four hundred dollars the okay that was okay now they're seven eight hundred dollars it's getting really silly and i think that the other manufacturers in order to keep up with apple have found themselves in the same sort of price area going forward. But, that you know, okay, whatever. I, I'm i like you, Mark. I don't change my phone that much. I'll, I'll keep it for four years, and it's fine. I can justify that. Um, being a technologist, I, I easily can justify it. But I have to have a phone that's unlockable. Uh, recently, my sister-in-law came over here to, uh, for Christmas to stay with us, and she needed a phone. Her phone happened to be on a plan in Australia where she couldn't unlock it unless she bought out, you know, she was, she felt prey to this whole model. So she couldn't use her phone overseas. So what did I do? I went on eBay and for $75, I bought an HTC M8, which is like a two and a half year old. Yeah, they're great phone. 75 bucks, unlocked, ready to go as new, gave it to her when she got here. She pops her SIM in. She goes, Hey, I really, when she was leaving, she goes, I really like that phone. Can I keep it? I'm like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. It's 75 bucks. But I'm thinking, that's the phone. What's the difference in terms of user experience? She got to do the same sort of thing she would have done with her phone that was under contract or her iPhone or whatever it was. She's sending texts. She's taking photos. She's on Facebook. She's reading her emails, whatever. She's tethering. What do you want to spend more than 75 bucks for that for? Is there something special that is in the big and nice and shiny and flashy lights? I mean, where's the justification in all of that? Well, that's the same question of would you rather have a Toyota or a Lexus? They're the same company, but the nameplate is different. 
Um, and and they both get you where you want to go, and they get both get roughly the same gas mileage. Uh, they have essentially the same engine and components, but Lexus is the luxury brand, and Toyota is is the, the economy brand. So if you're brand conscious, if you want to be seen as a luxury person, uh, then you you plunk down the nine hundred dollars for the new iPhone seven. And and you know AT and T for example, with their twenty four dollar a month uh, thing, twenty four dollars a month times twenty four months um, is six hundred bucks. Uh, and that's that's not unreasonable, right? That's what you would pay for an iPhone. So at twenty four dollars a month for two years, um, they're not gouging you. They're they're charging you the same thing that Apple would charge you already if you went and bought it, and they're probably getting the same, you know, twenty percent. I'm guessing markup on it. So it's not it's not a big ripoff. The ripoff comes when you don't upgrade, uh, and Ooh. that's the thing. And and people don't need a new phone every two years. They just don't. Even kids who drop and break them. You know, my 14-year-old has has had hers last uh, a year and a half. I'm surprised by that. Frankly, I expected her to drop and break it, but she has proven me wrong because quickly that little thing became her lifeline, and and she she treasures it and treats it with with love and care. Uh, and so people just don't break phones, and they certainly don't wear out in two years. So it's it's kind of you're in that cycle. The same people who buy a new car every two or three years, nobody needs a new car every two years. They want that new car experience and and they'll go into a dealership and they'll trade in upside down and carry debt into the new loan so that they can have that new car experience which lasts you know until your kid spills uh, milk in the back seat you know and then you no longer have a new car and now you're driving you know the debt from another one and then they'll go two years later and they'll carry debt from two previous cars into a new loan and again, we're we're getting into financial stuff, but it's all the same thing. It's that I have to have the new because I deserve new, and it really is. It becomes a a, a brand, a lifestyle choice. I deserve the newest iPhone. I would say seventy five percent of the decision making to buy the iPhone is because it's a, a device of status. Yes, and it's because of how you want to be perceived by the community in which you travel within. And if you want to have the status, that's fine. And look, I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody having status if they've earned it. But I think that people who prematurely buy status before they've actually earned the status pay the price. And they're the ones who are at the, you know, uh, the title loan stores and the, you know, pay, you know, check, uh, what do they go, the, you know, where they give you the check for next yeah, week before you've earned it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that's where they end up. And that's the mistakes that, you know, look, I'm sure we all in our, at some point in our lives have made those sort of mistakes probably in our younger, younger years. But at the end of the day, you learn and Apple are the ultimate, um, you know, attractive status device that, 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 um, uh, uh, demographic would go to like moths to a flame. And, and I think that's, that's a problem. It's not Apple's problem. Apple's done nothing wrong trying to create a great product. They've done nothing wrong being a leader in their market. They haven't. But when they get somebody entrapped into that and they don't want to let them go and they want to continually extract more and more by controlling the walled garden, whether it be the methodology in which you get your apps or the, your inability to get in or out of the ecosystem or the fact that if you've got an iPhone, you're more likely going to buy a MacBook because they work together better than they do with other things. That's where I have a problem with it. 
It's okay to have a really nice, shiny, great status device. And for those that have earned it, welcome to the, to the world of status and enjoy it and get that with your luxury yacht. Good on you. But don't trap them in. That's not right. You know, iTunes on Windows is a mutant warthog slavering beast pig. Uh, and I don't think that's an accident. Um, you know, it's the only way to interact with your phone on Windows, and they make that experience intentionally terrible so that you'll go buy a Mac. Seth, what are your final thoughts? I hate Apple. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, they make fine hardware, but the just the uh, so that's my final thoughts. Sorry. All right, well, let's jump from Apple phones to Apple apples and the USDA um, proving, uh, approving an apple that doesn't get brown because apparently that's a real problem for people. <laughs> yeah, this is a – I'd never heard of this before. Some uh, smart scientist somewhere has invented an apple um, that doesn't brown. Apparently, you can have it for like th- up to three weeks after you slice it and it doesn't turn brown. Isn't that? I never knew that existed. I just learnt this one today. And it's genetically um, modified. They got there by gene splicing, and therefore yeah. it is the devil's food. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I this is this is a whole topic unto itself, isn't it? Where you you how far can technology go before it starts really hitting the? Oh, I don't know if we should be there, sort of area. Um, I don't know if obviously the USDA approves the sale of these non-browning GMO apples. So it's coming to a supermarket near you people. Um, but are they good? Are they safe? Um, does it matter if it goes brown? Would you eat a three week old apple even if it wasn't brown? Um, well, if you've ever had apples from a McDonald's Happy Meal, you've eaten a three week old apple. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, here's the deal. It's not, and and this is how sad it's become in our country, it's not this genetically modified three-week-old apple versus a fresh apple. It's this genetically modified three-week-old apple, or it's this regular apple sliced and treated in a chemical bath. And those are your two choices for, quote-unquote, healthy food. Uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences says that we don't think suppressing this gene causes anything um but we don't know we just know we can suppress this gene so let's do it and see what happens versus this chemical bath makes this apple look fresh um that we cut in 1942 so let's see if somebody some sucker will eat that and so those are your choices for health food and that it's sad and i know that's oversimplification mark go let me back the boss up just a little bit okay um and and I knew some of this from being a foodie, and a lot of this I'm just reading right here, so I'm not as smart as I, I appear. Um, the the when an apple is cut or bruised or damaged in some way, um, a an enzymatic process natural to the apple takes place. An ap, an enzyme called polyphenol oxidase is released that begins to essentially consume the apple. Um, this this is a natural enzyme that is present in the apple, but is not released until the apple is damaged. Um, 
presumably this is um you know some process by which uh when the apple falls off the tree it rapidly begins to break down so that the seeds inside the apple can germinate um i would assume that the that that mother nature accidentally stumbled upon this uh particular combination of things or it was designed that way, whichever you choose to believe, um, that as an apple falls from the tree, that damage is enough to release the enzymes, which then begin to consume the apple so that the seed inside the apple can germinate. And that's the whole purpose of a fruit. The purpose of a fruit is to be eaten and pooped. Um, That's what fruits do. So this is a natural process. Um, You can arrest that natural process by breaking down the enzyme. And this chemical bath that Seth is talking about is basically vitamin C. They use primarily ascorbic acid because any acid will break down that enzyme, any light acid. That's why uh, your mother probably sprinkled lemon juice over her apples when she cut them. The acid in the lemon juice is enough to break down the uh, the polyphenol oxidase, thus keeping your apples whole. So, yes, it is a chemical bath, but it is a chemical bath of a very not only harmless uh, thing, but thing that you probably take one of every night before you go to bed in your Flintstones vitamin. Anyway, now. Having said that, they turned off this gene so that this uh, enzyme isn't released anymore. So now that when the apple falls off the tree, it just sits there nice and pretty for weeks. Um, is it safe? Well, the FDA thinks so. And the FDA tests these things pretty uh, pretty hard. That's their whole purpose. Their job is to make sure that we don't get sick. Um, interesting side note, the FDA came about when a large medicine company, and I can't remember who it was, uh, mix propylene glycol with a cough syrup to make it sweet. Propylene glycol, in case you don't know, is antifreeze. Um, and kids were taking it and dying of kidney failure because nobody bothered to think, hey, does propylene glycol have any other uh, 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 attributes other than tasting sweet? Well, yeah, it does. It kills people. So the FDA uh, came out uh, a result directly from that as people died, including, by the way, the formulator of the cough syrup who had a press conference and took like three doses of the stuff saying, I believe this is safe. And 10 hours later was dying. Um, so the FDA was created to do that. And they rigidly test these things. And as much as I am an anti-government um, liberal, uh, you know, uh, libertarian, I kind of trust the FDA. They have had a good track record of keeping us safe. You could also say they have a track record of obstructing, uh, you know, drugs and that sort of thing, but they have a good track record of keeping us safe. Propylene glycol has never made it into a cough syrup since then. So I'm okay with this. And in fact, I will look for the Arctic apple just because I want to cut it and leave it on my counter for three weeks and see what happens. <laughs> a better living through chemistry, I always say. Yeah, um, it does sound on the surface, it doesn't sound too dangerous. Um, I, I guess it's hard to tell. I mean, we're going to not, we won't know until time has proven whether this was good or bad in the same way we didn't know if, if NutraSweet or Splendor was good or bad, um, seemed all right. I guess, you know, it's just you don't know until you've had 10 years of use of it, whether it's, you know, destroyed your liver. Um, so I guess we don't know until, well, I, you know, what are you going to do? Look, we've got nine point something billion people on this planet in 2050. You've got to feed them, right? So you've got to find ways to do it more effectively, more cost effectively and more widespread. Maybe this is a good way to feed starving people in countries that you know an apple that goes brown that they can't eat is a problem and if you're one of those anti-gmo people you can't eat corn or beans or peas 
because those are genetically modified. Not by scientists, but by agronomists, agriculturists, the, the Mayans. The Maya, I think, is what they like to be called now because um, they're all dead and it matters to them. Um, they, were the, they were genetically modifying a plant to make corn. And they did it with the time-honored tradition of crossbreeding, which, by the way, is genetic modification. So knock it off, you morons. Genetic modification has been going on for centuries and happens even today primarily by crossbreeding. It's not Last some mutant lab Last time I thing. checked. You couldn't crossbreed a fish with a strawberry and get sweeter strawberries in nature. So thank you for oversimplifying a program. I I wish I could remember the logical term. I said primarily. It still primarily takes place today by crossbreeding. Yes, it does happen in the lab, but those are the extreme cases. And yes, you do get glow in the dark you know, fish because you've crossbred things. But yeah, that happens. And I don't know how this happened. But I'm still saying that most cross, most genetic modification happening today is happening in the greenhouse, not in the lab. So, so you, go ahead. When you, say, when, you say the, when you say the greenhouse, you mean like grafting of uh, yes, like an, uh, an orange with a lemon tree, that right. sort of thing, right? Navel yeah, oranges, mean, seedless yeah, grapes. Been, These are genetically been, modified foods. Right. That's been going on for decades and decades, and we just accept that because it's done within – if nature didn't want it, nature would reject it, right? So in this case, it's natural and it seems acceptable. So yeah, I, I, I guess we're eating tangerines and all those other variations of fruit because of that, and it hasn't killed us yet. Right. And it's for some reason, once we moved it from the greenhouse to the lab, it became a bad thing. And I, I just don't accept that, that because we've we've altered the process, the the mechanism by which it happens that it's suddenly a bad thing. Now, what you're talking about, Seth, is is direct gene implantation from one species to another. Okay, that's a little Frankenstein creepy. I'll give you that. But that is the, you know, the very small minority of genetically modified foods in the world today. Well, yeah, I would also, I think that you have to, sometimes you have to pick your battles with this stuff too, because if there is a problem with feeding population and this helps solve that problem you're picking starvation as a downside risk versus a potential you know unknown medical risk um of poison or whatever which we're assuming this is not right so So, in that case you know pick your worst of the two and i guess starvation is not something you want to happen so let let me put this hypothetical to you if you could grow hamburgers if you could splice cows with corn and and get a burger plant and and end starvation in africa because you are now growing beef and giving people uh, access to a high quality protein source that is not an animal right so this this is a hamburger that a vegetarian could eat because it's 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 grown out of the ground if that could happen seth would you be okay with it would you would you be okay with that weird Frankenstein science for the benefit of people who can't grow, you know, enough food to support themselves. Man, I, I don't know. You know, I, I just, I think that, you know, I, if you believe in that, you know, 
somehow these two single-celled organisms bumped into each other and said, hey, you want to grab a beer? And then that gave birth to a double-celled <laughs> organism. And, you know, over billions and billions of years, and then then at that point, what does it matter? Let's get freaky with it. We're all related anyway. Um, but if you believe things were created by an intelligence greater than we are, we're going to go mucking around in that creation and not know, you know, you give a kid a basic chemistry set. You don't give, you don't turn a five-year-old kid loose in the MIT lab and say, Hey, why don't you go see what you can whip up today? Um, so I just, I don't, we don't know enough to be doing stuff like this and we can so jack it up that by the time we realize we shouldn't have jacked that up, we can't unjack it. You can't, you know, you can't unbake a cake. But how do you know enough unless you experiment? Well, and again, there's a difference between experiment and then experimentation released into the general population of the world. All right, Miles, the- same question. Would you would you be okay with a hamburger plant? Um okay uh, yes but um yes however i'm basing the yes on the assumption that if i was to say no and the breeding patterns of let's say asia and i'm not picking on asia but i'll use them because they have such the vast majority of population by country on the planet if the breeding practices in those regions that are producing billions and billions and billions of people do not change and we cannot feed them, and we are creating a world in which human beings are suffering, dying, uh, getting diseases, and all the things that go along with a lack of food, then I would absolutely say, do whatever you have to do to feed them, right? So I think you can't have one without the other. You can't say, no, I'm going to take a, a high gr- high position and say, I don't believe in lab testing GMO food, you know, uh, create beef by enzymes and DNA. I don't believe in that, but I'm willing to let a billion people die because of a lack of food in another country. I'd have to go with the people. That would just be me. Dude, this would have been a great show topic. Forced <laughs> yeah. eugenics or genetic modification <laughs> of food. Oh my gosh, it's like... I don't, again, this is a case where you guys have a, a position that I can't understand. I, apparently I just have some switches missing in my brain, perhaps as a result of genetic modifications, but <laughs> I, I'm all for this. Um, for if, if only for the novelty of it, if growing a hamburger plant costs more than beef and is more difficult and it will never actually feed a, a starving person. I still say we should do it because learning is its own value. And and Seth, to, you know, I will see your right wing conservative religious principles and raise it and say that uh, if God gave us the ability, the intelligence to figure these things out, uh, we would be, you know, to to use the intelligence given us is a form of worship, and to suppress it because uh, we're afraid is is to deny the being that he created us to be we were we were designed with creativity with imagination with curiosity these were things that were were bred into us that were breathed into us by god and to suppress them out of fear is is an act of of rebellion against god 
Well, I'm, there's some truth in that, but you know, we could turn those creativity into, you know, getting rid of our excess and being better stewards of what we've been given rather than trying to jiggy what we've been given and make something else. So I just, yeah, I mean, again, there's not an easy answer. So I, I don't know. I see a difference between what happens if I cross pollinate these two uh, strains of maize versus what happens if I pluck these five genes out of my gene bank and grow them in an ooze. To me, there's a big difference there. So, and, see, but, and I just don't see it. I th- see them as exactly the same thing. A navel orange is just as a much of an abomination as a hamburger plant. Yeah, I, I don't like seedless stuff. I mean, the sad part is I like eating seedless stuff, but on a philosophical level, I don't like seedless fruit. So, but because you're I, producing I, a fruit that cannot reproduce, right? Right, and that's been one of the things against the uh, the corn people. Right, they have produced seeds that are sterile. And the only way to plant that corn is to buy it back from the people who are the only people who are able to create it because the plant, the plant can't reproduce itself. And, well, I, and the, the problem is you can put a fence and say on the left side of the fence, Farmer Jones owns and on the right side of the fence, Farmer Fred owns. But you, we haven't been able to isolate those crops. And so you get these genetically modified sterile plants that then get out into the wild population because for some reason nature doesn't respect that picket fence we built down the middle of the furrow. So there's got to be, I don't know, I I just don't think we're far enough along in our understanding to be doing it yet. Again, we should graduate, we should get out of kindergarten and maybe in the middle school and high school before we try to do this advanced level stuff. Yeah, but without the advances we already have, we could not feed the population we currently have. That's true. I, you know, there's, like I say, there aren't easy answers, I understand. And at least two-thirds of this panel could do without a, do with a little less feeding, right? So maybe <laughs> that's not such a big problem. Yeah, and is it is it we can't feed them or we don't want to do what it would take to feed them? You know, I mean, do I want to use part of my land to grow crops or do I want to stop on at Taco Bell on the way home? Which one is easier for me to do short term? You know, again, it's, it's the iPhone again. I'm taking the short term ease of picking up my food versus the long term re- commitment required to grow fresh produce. So. Man. I did uh, not see this show going there. That was awesome. <laughs> you did say apples. <laughs> <laughs> All of this because uh, some judge said <laughs> developers can <see> apple. <laughs> and this is where we ended up. <laughs> so we went from um, from a legal court case to a philosophical discussion about whether or not it is, it is worship to genetically modify creatures. Wow. <laughs> You heard it here first, people. And only. I I would say first, last, and only. Yep. Um, I don't see how we can go any further than that. This, uh, we, anywhere we go would just be downhill from here. So I'm just, just going to stop it and say, Seth, what happened this week in history? Okay. This week in history is further proof that we have gone too far too fast. On January 25th, 1979, a robot 
kills an automobile worker. Robert Williams of Michigan was the first human to be killed by a robot. He was 25 years old. The accident at the Ford Motor Company resulted in a $10 million lawsuit. The jury deliberated for two and a half hours before announcing the decision against Unit Handling Systems, a division of Litton Industries. It ordered the manufacturer of the one-ton robot that killed Williams to pay his family $10 million. The robot was designed to retrieve parts from storage, but its work was deemed too slow. Williams was retrieving a part from a storage bin when the robot's arm hit him in the head, killing him instantly. In the suit, the family claimed the robot had no safety mechanisms, lacking even warning noises to alert workers that it was nearby. So this week in history is proof that Skynet exists. 1979. Yeah. Long wow. time ago, robots so, have been after us. Being the the uh, um, engineer that I am, this is a this is a system process breakdown, not a technology breakdown. the The designers of the robot said only the robot will be retrieving parts. the The workers in the plant said this robot is too slow. I'm going to retrieve parts. So this is a system failure. Uh, you don't need a warning when there are no humans retrieving parts you don't need a beep you don't need anything because only the robot is retrieving parts so it was designed to go in place and said no humans will be here therefore we don't have to be careful about humans then the so, human said this isn't working well enough so i'm going to go in there and he got killed so, so i say you the guy said, got Mark, what he had what he deserved is that the humans should all be destroyed because we get in the way of the robots that's <laughs> yes, what i heard you say that's what i said death to all humans uh just let the robots no the this again uh, i get this it was a 10 million dollar lawsuit but i really think this was a case of jurors saying what you just said skynet is upon us the world is uh, is being taken over a robot stole my granddaddy's job when really the problem if anybody's going to get sued here it should have been the plant for not having proper uh processes and mechanisms in place Ford is the is at fault here, and the manager on the floor who shouldn't uh, who shouldn't uh, have sent the guy to go get the part, or should very much have said, "Don't go anywhere near there." There's a two ton robot there, right? But at the same token, what happens if the robot malfunctions? If there's no warning apparatus to let you know he's coming, what happened if a rat got in its um, its stabilizer and it thought left was actually right. And so it thinks it's going to pick apart, but what it's headed to is the company break room and nobody knows because there's no beep, beep, beep whenever it approaches. So I, I wouldn't say that this company was totally at fault for implementing a robot with no safety features, but it is partially at fault. Yes. I'll accept that. Okay. So compromise can be reached. So we're moving towards uh, autonomous cars probably in the next five years. Are we going to see repeats of this sort of thing as the cars make mistakes and hit a dog or back into a kid or something? I mean, this is going to be an ongoing problem, right? It's part of of our transition. I I don't remember who it was, but one manufacturer of electric cars actually put speakers in it to make engine noises because they were too quiet and people were walking out in front of them because they didn't. No, they were staring down at their phone, and they were trusting their ears, and they couldn't hear the electric car. So, yeah, this is this is an issue of um, society needing to adapt to technology as it advances. Yeah, or we got- we're weeding out the low end of the gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> so we can That's get a- to those evolutionary points faster, Mark. We can always genetically modify more idiots. That's easy. <laughs> we can. Yep. <laughs> We, I don't think we need to genetically modify them. They seem to come up on their own quite quickly. I mean, did you see the news story recently about David Blaine shooting himself in the face? You know, we have no. plenty of idiots. This is fine. 
man. Uh, all right. So that, that was interesting. Uh, that may be the first this week in history that we had an argument about. But we're setting records left and right here. <laughs> oh, all right. Man. This is the part of the show where I tell you how you can com- uh, comment back to us, how you can feedback, how you can let us know what you're thinking. Go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, and the f- page answer the world's hardest captcha, fill out the form there, and that uh, sends an email that gets priority in my inbox. You can also call 559-IAMOP, leave a message there on our Google voicemail, and uh, we will uh, play it right here on the air, assuming it's playable. And um, we love hearing from you. Um, I have a feeling that this show might generate some feedback. Um, Probably not about the actual topic, but about (laughs) apples that don't brown. So I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And uh, let us know, lmnopity.com. Also, please tell other people about the show. If you like this show, if you tune in each week, if you download each week, whatever, um, tell somebody why and uh, maybe encourage them to do so too. So Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity, thus making you look like a better hiring option? Okay. Well, this website is called Yeah Boy. Yeah, so boy. You need your um, you need the speaker on for the full effect. Oh and basically, my gosh! <laughs> how long can you make the boy last by clicking to jump over the obstacles? And if you double click, it's a longer jump. Oh, that is so annoying. <laughs> um, the audio on this alone is annoying. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it'll tell you how many eyes are in your boy <laughs> when you finally die. <laughs> I'm currently up to two I'm I've currently this is the best I've ever done. Over three hundred. I recommend that you go to work and sit in your cubicle and turn the volume <laughs> up really loud and play this game. Yeah, Seth. Seth's looking for options for his job interviews. <laughs> so anyway, maybe a lot more job interviews in the near future. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, it's just how long, how many eyes can you get in Yeah Boy by doing that? And it's like, oh, I only got fifty six at time. I can do more, and I can do more, and I can do more, and then you will collapse under the insanity, thus making me look like a better hire. All right, uh, I got nothing. There's nothing left to say, but good night. Thank you, folks. Uh, We appreciate you hanging out with us. I do love doing this show every week. Um, And so we'll see you next week because that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant.